Guys, we are continuing in our series, Make Your Own Mistakes, Don't Make Mine. And for those of you all that are visiting, my name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, this series is going through the Bible and looking at the mistakes that the great people of the Bible made. Their stories are there for a reason so that we don't make them. Human beings are uh, the only species that are capable of learning from the mistakes of others and the only one inclined not to do so. Uh, and so, uh, so that's what we're, we're doing today. And um, the whole year theme is God first. That's the whole year theme. Everything we're talking about is putting God first. And so uh, today's part four. And it's simply called Don't Turn to the Wrong Things When Vulnerable. The main thing today is when life hurts, Satan will always tempt you with a new way to destroy yourself. I, I sat down with a young man who was uh, in, in recovery, and he, and he was an addict, recovering addict. And he'd been a family friend. I'd known him since he was a little kid. And he, we met uh, in a coffee shop, and he, w- he was just talking about getting his life right with Christ and, and, and everything after falling off uh, and going the wrong way. And uh, we were just talking about getting your life in order, getting finances in order, making sure that your prayer life, study life, you know, just basically cultivating the Christian life. And then he said something that just, just hit me. He said, but what if I have a bad day? I said, well, you you have a bad day. I mean, people have bad days all the time. And he said, but I'll need something. And and I said, hang on a second. You'll need what? And he goes, you know, I mean, I'll need something. If I have a bad day, I'll need something to, to, you know, to get me through it. And and I thought to myself, I, I, I said, you don't need something to get through a bad day. You have been told that you do, and Satan may be lying to you and saying you need something, but you don't need something to get through a bad day. People have bad days all the time. People have been having bad days since the very first day, okay? The first day a person had was probably a bad day, and we've been having bad days ever since. And, and, and he looked at me like I had two heads. He goes, you, what are you talking about? Of course I need something if I'm having a bad day. Meaning he needed a hit, he needed a drink, he needed uh, something. And I realized that there is a vast number of people that believe as he believes. If you have a bad day, if you're depressed, if you, if you get rejected, if you, you know, what, what, when life hits, you got to have something. You got you to go have your comfort food, you got to have your drink, you got to have your hit, you got to have your fix. You got to have something because a bad day is just too much for us to handle. And, um, and I, I realized that that is actually very common. And we find this to a, in, in a big way by one of the most famous people in the Bible. Now, when you hear the story of Noah, you think about the flood, about the animals on the ark and everything like that. That is the famous part that the church loves to talk about. We, we, over in children's ministry next door, all 500 kids that are over there right now are learning uh, probably about Noah because you guys have been fruitful and multiplying, fill the earth and subdued it like the, like the Bible says. All right, and, and so they're learning about the Noah, but they don't know, they're not learning how Noah finished. The only story we have about Noah after the ark was a very dark Episode. We're going to pick up his story here in Genesis 6, 5 through 8. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and how every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Everybody talks about how much better the good old days were. 
I don't think so. All right, verse six, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. Now, how bad, I don't know how bad we are. I hope he's not regretting making us. That's how bad they were back then, okay? All right, and, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created, and with them the animals, birds, and creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And we know the story. He tells them to build an ark and everything. Uh, in, ver- in Genesis chapter 9, a few chapters later, after the story of that, verse 20 to 23, this is the story we have of Noah. Noah was the most righteous man. He was a, he was a God-fearing person. He was, he, was, he was not rejecting God or anything like this. But look how this is the only story we have of Noah after the flood. Check this out. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his brothers outside. Shem and Japheth took, took a garment and laid it across their shoulders, and they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their fa- faces were turned the other way so they did not see their father naked. Now, what in the world is this story in there for? Sounds really strange, doesn't it? Well, This is what I believe is going on here. We hear about the great hero of the faith, Noah. But imagine what it was like when he stepped out of that ark, you all, when when it came to rest on Mount Ararat. And he surveys. Everything he knew was gone. Every friend, every neighbor, aunts, uncles, maybe his parents, Everything was completely gone. And not only were they gone, everyone was dead. In one instant, he lost his entire friend network. He lost, now, his family, his wife, and his children were there, so they were there. But imagine how many connections he lost and how, how everything was gone every building, every farm, every person, every, everything completely gone. I guess dealing with the death of every person that you know is harder than we think even for a hero of the faith like Noah. So the Bible shows us him turning to alcohol, to alleviating the loneliness, alleviating the depression. When we are preparing here for worship team, I don't know if y'all know this, we get here early and we pray over you all and we pray over the day and we pray for each other. I was telling everybody what I was talking about and a couple people on the worship team were like, yeah, I wonder if he had some survivor's guilt. Why why was I the one, why were we saved and everyone else wasn't? And and not only that, but as as the, the ark, as the floods were coming in, I wonder if Noah was hearing his friends and neighbors yelling, Noah, let us in! And he had to listen that he heard that late at night. See, what we see here is Noah turning to something other than God when life got tough. Now, I'm not minimizing his loneliness. I'm not minimizing the depression. I'm not minimizing his stress. Believe me, I don't want to ever experience what Noah did. But I do know this, is that when that situation, when you're in that situation, that's when Satan rolls up into your mind and says, hey, I got something better than God. 
See, Satan is not going to try to oppose God in your life as much as he is going to try to replace God in your life. See, we as human beings were designed to get our full satisfaction and full everything from God. And when, if Satan can replace that, it doesn't matter what it is. It, it, whether it's an alcohol bottle, whether it's a hit from a, uh, from, from a drug, whether it's sex, whether it's a weekend hobby that takes you away from church every weekend, whether it's a major sin, whether it's mass murder, it doesn't matter as long as that isn't God. He wants to replace God. Now see, when you understand that Satan's goal is replacement, then everything makes sense. See, Satan wanted Noah to replace God with alcohol. He wanted him to find satisfaction or temporary relief from his loneliness in an alcohol bottle rather than his relationship with God. And believe me, nothing has changed. Okay? Today, he's doing the same thing to you. may not be alcohol. It may be alcohol. doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what it is as long as it's not God. And the things that God, he wants you to replace God with are always things that will destroy you. Always. Okay, so here are some times when you're most tempted. When Satan rolls up, when he tries to replace God, here are the times we're vulnerable. The first one is this, when we're lonely. When we're lonely. Psalm 25, 16, David's crying out to God. He says this, turn to me and be gracious to me for I am lonely and afflicted. Uh, David was feeling the, uh, uh, the, the temptation from Satan. He was lonely, he was afflicted, and he, he felt his heart moving towards something that would make him feel better. And so he cries out to God, so turn towards me, God, because I'm lonely and afflicted and I'm about to go under. That's what this psalm is about. When you're lonely, Satan will try to replace God with something that will destroy you. Um, I was talking with a Christian man several months ago. Christian man, this was not a, this was not a non-believer, this was a believer in Christ. Um, and he hadn't been to church in a while, and I approached him to ask where he'd been. And after the normal mumblings about being busy and you know having things to do, that's all, always people say when the pastor asks where you've been, you know that. Um, but and then he shared with me the real reason. He and his girlfriend have moved in together and he knew it was wrong, and he didn't want to face anyone because he didn't want to be called out. And I told him, I said, yes, that's completely wrong. And I said, you know better as a Christian man. I said, if, you're, if you weren't a Christian, I'd say, man, go knock yourself out. I, I, you, you're, you, you, do whatever. But you are a Christian. You call Jesus Christ Lord and Savior, and you are blatantly sinning like this. Why are you doing this? And this was his answer to me. Well, it's better than being alone. Now, I've, I've been married for 26 years. I am not discounting his loneliness. I am not, because there are a lot of lonely people out there. Americans are very lonely. I'm not discounting that at all. But here's the thing. That provided him the vulnerability that Satan needed to wreck him. And I said this. I said, you bought the lie. He goes, what lie? And I said, the lie that there's something better than God, that there exists something in this world that will satisfy you more than God. You bought the lie. It's the same lie speaking, Satan's been speaking to humanity since the very beginning, since he tempted Eve with the forbidden fruit. There's something better than God's command. And uh, so I, I, I said, man, Satan presented that sin as the answer to your loneliness. And so I said, so he willingly walked into sin. He destroyed his Christian witness to his kids and his friends. He disobeyed God, all because he said it was better than being lonely. 
And I, and I, I asked myself, I was very depressed, I was very discouraged after that conversation. Because I thought to myself, I, 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 as I, was, when I drove home from that, I asked God, I said, is that the level of commitment that Christians have nowadays? Is that it? All it takes is being lonely for us to deny everything that the Bible says? Is that how easy it is to get Christians to walk away from their beliefs, from what they know is right and wrong? Is that, as, is that all it takes? Is that how insignificant sin is to Christians now? That, hey, I'll, I will completely go against the word of God just as long as I'm not lonely? When you're lonely, you're vulnerable. I, was, I started teaching at Revive Lifehouse again after about a two-year break. And teaching guys struggling with addiction is a, is a, is a great thing. It gives me, a, it real, first of all, I love it. The guys are just so sincere and honest about, man, I'm at rock bottom, I need God. Okay, There are no pretenses, no, no uh, excuses, shall we say, with guys in recovery. Okay, They're like, yeah, I've destroyed everything. I need help. I need God. All my, I, I have no pride. I have no nothing. I, I need God. Uh, it's just such a fertile ground for the word of God. It's amazing. But, um, but it's opened my eyes to a lot of things. And, and, and I always thought, guys, growing up, that it was the party that created the attic. You know, somebody goes and, he, and he's, he's hanging out with his friends and he's drinking and everything and, and, and he keeps doing that. Keeps, that's how he becomes an alcoholic? Not really. Or, you know, go to the party and, and you're shooting up and everything. It's friends. It's a good time you feel, do this to feel good. No. I was very shocked to learn that parties in general don't make addicts. See, addicts are made when the drug or the alcohol is presented as a solution and you need it. Addicts are rarely made at a party. Addicts are made when the substance is presented as a solution to loneliness or oppression. And that's one of the reasons why I, I have a problem with the celebration of what sociologists have started calling mommy drinking culture. I've talked about it before, the celebration the laughter at how much wine I need to make it through the day with my kids. It's celebrated on Facebook. It's celebrated, and, 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 it, and people are liking and sharing and giving kudos. Yes, you need that wine, Mom. I'm like, celebrating, needing a substance. We're on very dangerous ground there because that's how addicts are made C.S. Lewis talks about this in the screw tape letters. He said this, uh, the, uh, he, he talks about the, how, how life moves in cycles. There are periods of happiness and periods of depression. It's just the way life is, okay? And, and screw tape is talking to Wormwood and he writes this. I've always found the trough periods, the low periods of human undulation provide excellent opportunity for all sensual temptations, particularly those of sex. This may surprise you because, of course, there was more physical energy and there was more, more potential appetite at the peak periods. But you must remember the powers of resistance then are also the highest. The health and spirits which you use in producing lust can also very easily used for work or play or thought or innocuous merriment, he writes. The attack has a much better chance of success when the man's whole inner world is drab and cold and empty. It has also been noted that, that trough sexuality is subtly different in quality from that of the peak, much likely, much less likely to lead to being in love. 
much more easily drawn into perversions, much less generous and imaginative than even, than, and, and even spiritual. It is also the same with other desires of the flesh. Here he writes this, you are much more likely to make a man a sound drunkard by pressing drink on him as an anodyne or a, or a solution when he is dull and weary than when he is happy. See, when we are in the low periods, when life is hard, a lot of times Satan will present an easy, quick fix to you feeling bad, and people fall for it all the time. When you're lonely, Satan will try to replace God with something that'll make you feel temporarily better, but in the end will destroy you. The second time you're, you're most tempted uh, to replace God, to destroy yourself, is when you're jealous. When you're jealous. Now people say, I don't get jealous. I don't get jealous at all. That doesn't affect me at all. Really? Okay, well, let's, let's, well, then you're better than the entire nation of Israel. 1 Samuel 8, 19 through 20, they wanted a king. They wanted to be like the nations around them. They wanted to, they, they, they were tired of, of, of not being in the in crowd. They wanted to be like everyone around, so they, they said, Samuel, give us a king. And Samuel, in 1 Samuel 8, 19 through 20, people refused to listen to him. No, they said, we want a king over us, and then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. Samuel had just told them, listen, you get a king, this is what's going to happen. He's going to take the, 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 his, your best possession for himself. He, he's going to tax you all into oblivion. He's going to take your daughters to be his concubines. He's going to take your sons and put them to be slaughtered in the military. He's going to take the best of your crops. He's going to take the best of your wealth for himself. That's what the king's going to do. And Samuel warned them. And they said, no, we want to be like everyone else. See, guys, when you are not fully satisfied in God, if God is not your satisfaction, you'll always look around to see what other people have that'll make you feel better. That's what jealousy is. What have you compromised within yourself to have what everyone else around you has? Just a, just a question, a little, a little insight. What have you compromised to have what everyone else is having? People will spend themselves into unimaginable debt just to keep up with the Joneses, all right? People will date and marry a person of terrible character just because they see all their other friends married and, and, and having kids. People will do that, you all. People, when they're jealous, will, will do things and walk away from the satisfaction they find in God to find to, to lesser things. Satan can tempt them with a car or a standard of living or debt and just destroy themselves. We've all seen it. We've seen it happen. It happened to the nation of Israel because they wanted to be like everyone else. And when you want to be like everyone else, you are on, on dangerous ground because you will be tempted to compromise. See, a person that's fully satisfied in God, they, they, they don't care how the neighbor's living. They don't care how much money a person makes. Awesome, wonderful, has nothing to do with me. They don't care how well someone else's kid does in a sport. doesn't matter how, if someone who's fully satisfied in God, they're content with their life. They can't, they can't be tempted to be jealous of other people, okay? That is the danger. But people that are not fully satisfied in God have this restlessness. They're always looking at this person and looking at this person and looking at this person. This person at work got the raise, and I didn't. This person got the uh, promotion, and I didn't. By the way, you want to see if there's jealousy in your life? Why don't you take the salaries of everybody and post them in the break room? See what everyone else is make? You'll find how jealous people are, maybe even you, okay? 
So when you're jealous, when you are restless within you and you see what other people have, that is when you are on dangerous ground for, for Satan replacing God. He'll say, find your contentment, find your satisfaction, something other than God. Be like everyone else. The third time that we are, uh, are, are tempted to destroy ourselves, when we're stressed, Matthew 6, 31 through 33 says this, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your, your heavenly Father knows that you need them, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. My question is, what do you turn to when you're worried or stressed? Are you, are you like that young man that, well, I need something. I need something to get me through that day, if I have a bad day. What do you turn to when you're worried and stressed? Here's something that I've learned. That fearful, worried people are easily controlled. The more afraid you are, the more controllable you are. And that may be by an earthly ruler or by Satan. The more worried and stressed you are about your life, about the future, the more easily tempted and easily controlled you are. And that is not God's plan for you. He wants you to be free. He wants you to, he wants you to be free. And where, where Jesus said, where the Son is, there is freedom. He doesn't want you controlled. Uh, like I said, people who are worried, extremely vulnerable to placing faith in God with the first thing that sounds good. Stress and worry are always conditions we turn, where we turn to quick fixes and, the, and, the, and strong leaders who present easy solutions to complex problems. In the 1920s, the, the economy fell apart in Germany. The Weimar Republic, people were taking wheelbarrows full of cash to go buy a life, loaf of bread. You ought to see the pictures of it. You, you can see it. Google it. Okay, well, when situations like that, people were stressed, people were worried about, what, what shall we wear, what shall we eat? Well, they turned to the loudest voice in the room, which was that of Adolf Hitler, and you see the consequences. When people turned to the loudest voice, the strong leader presenting easy solutions to complex problems, that's when you're vulnerable to it, and when you're stressed or worried, Satan will tempt you to move away from what God says to do. Let's take money, for example. When you're stressed and worried about money, what's the first thing to go? A lot of you guys have taken Financial Peace University. We offer that every single, every single year. And, and, and you've got your budget. You've got your baby steps. You're working your baby steps. You know, everything that we, that we lay out, we talk about it all the time. You're, you've got a plan. You've got a financial plan. Well, all of a sudden, the economy tanks. We're in a recession. Everybody, you know, the doomsdayers are always saying, hey, we're, this, this is bad. What's the first thing to go? Do you throw out the budget? Do you throw out God's plan for your finances? Do, do you stop the giving and saving that's such an important part of that and just panic and just kind of go to, uh, to the easiest thing? That's what a lot of people do. That's exactly what Satan wants you to do. See, 2020 was a case study in what fearful people will do. We saw stress and worried people turn on friends and neighbors and family like wolves, throwing aside the command to love one another, to love your enemies, to trust in God. See, when you're stressed, you are tempted to replace your faith with the quick and the easy, with what feels good. The loudest voice in the room presenting easy solutions to complex problems, that's when we're vulnerable to that, you all. You're worried that's why the Bible says, do not live in fear. Fear not. 
For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, Paul writes, but of, but of love, power, and self-discipline. That is how God wants you to live. And that's why Jesus says, do not worry. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? That's a good question. The answer is no one. Yet we do it anyway. And when we're stressed and worried, that's when we are vulnerable to replacing God with something else. The last one, last time, is when we're depressed. 2 Timothy 3, 6 through 9. This is from the Message Translation. It says this. These are the kind of people who smooth talk themselves into the homes of unstable and needy women who take, and take advantage of them. Women who, depressed by their sinfulness, take up with every new religious fad that calls itself truth. They get exploited every time and never really learn. These men are like the Egyptian frauds, Jans and Jambres, who challenged Moses. They were rejects from the faith, twisted in the thinking, defying truth itself. But nothing will come to these latest imposters. Everyone will see through them, just as people saw through the Egyptian hoax. Okay, so this, when, when you are depressed, a, a lot of times, and it seems that the women here, okay, we're gonna speak to our, uh, to our daughters, to our wives, to our moms, to our sisters, okay? When, when you are depressed, and, and it's amazing that he singles out the women because it's, depression seems to hit women more. It hits the men, but it hits the, hits the women, it seems, in greater numbers. Um, that is when you are vulnerable to people that don't have your best interest at heart. I have two daughters, and I know that there are men out there that do not have their best interest at heart. I, I, I've known that since they were little. And so uh, when you're depressed, when, you're, when, you're guilt, when you feel guilty over your sin maybe, that is when you are vulnerable to people that don't have your best interests at heart. See, Noah was depressed. He stepped out of the ark and he saw everything was gone, friends, uncles, and, and, uh, and, and so he, this, was when he was, this was when he was vulnerable to replacing with alcohol to make him feel better. Okay, when you're depressed, be very, very, very careful. You're also, like I said, um, Satan will bring you someone when you're depressed that will make it seem like all the answers to all your problems. The first, ladies, he'll be the first guy to make you feel good in a long time. He'll, he'll make you feel pretty make you feel wonderful, valued. But he doesn't have your best interests at heart. See, Satan always approaches us when we're lonely, jealous, stressed, or depressed. He presents something quick and easy to make you feel better. He presents it as a solution to your problems, and it doesn't matter what it is as long as you turn your back on God. So when, when we are stressed, lonely, depressed, jealous, when we are dealing with that, this is, these are three phrases we need to avoid. Three phrases, okay? First one is this, I need. I need. Be very careful when you say the words, I need. If it's anything other than God, you're on dangerous ground. I need a drink. I need a fix. I need something to make me feel better. Be very careful when the words, I need, Escape your lips. The second one is this, I deserve. I deserve a break. I deserve a new car. I deserve comfort. I deserve. Whenever you say the words I deserve, your sinful sense of entitlement is bubbling up and you're about to do something that is not good for you, that is different than what God wants for you. I deserve. The Christian knows the only thing the Christian deserves is death and hell, okay? 
That's the only thing we deserve. The fact that, we're, that, that God has assured us a place in heaven is a gift, okay? But we don't deserve it. We don't deserve anything. So when you start saying the words deserve, that is when you're about to destroy yourself. The third thing is I've earned. I've earned. I've earned this vacation I can't pay for. I've earned it. Now I'm going to enjoy it. A friend of mine who worked at a bank told me that every Christmas, people come in and they get personal loans for five, six, seven thousand dollars and they will spend it on Christmas and they'll spend the entire year paying it off until November or October, paying twice to, to, to 150 percent. You know, winding up paying instead of $6,000, they wind up paying $12,000 with, with interest and everything. And then they'll come in and do it again. Some people will, buy, will borrow money for a vacation because I work hard and I deserve it. And they'll put themselves into debt, destroy their finances because they feel like they've earned it. Be very careful when the words I need, I deserve, or I've earned escape your lips because that is what Satan uses to tempt you. This is the truth. This is what I want for everybody here. I don't want to just warn. I want to, I want to propose something to you to consider. This is the truth. A person whose soul is satisfied in God alone is very difficult to tempt. You know how, how bad my yard looks? My yard is awful. I'm not a yard guy. How many yard people do we have? Do we have any yard people here? My yard is a mixture of bluegrass, uh, fescue, Centipede grass, Bermuda grass, dandelions, clover, chickweed. I mean, you name it, it's there. And that is what my yard looks like. It's awful. It's terrible. It really is. And I can spend my life trying to, you know, kill one dandelion here, a dandelion here, or a patch of clover here. And I can do that, and I'll get marginal. I'll be doing that the rest of my life. Or I could go on the offense and I can make sure I've got a great lawn which has taken up all the soil so that the weed seeds don't get down in it. And the same is true of your heart, you all. You all, your, your heart is, is like soil. It is primed. It is primed. And, and whatever gets in there, you all, whatever gets in there is going to grow. If positivity and love and joy and hope and encouragement gets in there, it's going to grow. But if negativity and bitterness and, the, and feelings of entitlement and feelings of needing and searching for something other than God gets in there, that's going to grow too. Your, your heart is like your yard. It's like, a, it's like dirt. It's just primed for whatever gets in there to start growing. And so I, wanna, I, I want to suggest in a loving way, that instead of trying to slay weeds, let's cover the yard with grass so that the weeds can't get in. See, a person who's fully satisfied with God, who wants nothing, who is so satisfied by what God has given him and satisfied by God's word and finds joy in God's word, it's extremely difficult to tempt because you don't want anything. Listen to what Psalm 63, 1 through 5, I would love for this to be the motto of every person in here and everyone joining us online. God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I, I, I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. 
I had a dry and parched land where there's no water. I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, I will lift up my hands. My lips will glorify you. I'll praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I'll lift up my hands. My soul, I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. Isn't it interesting that he describes being satisfied with God as being full after eating a good meal? Isn't that amazing? There's a lot of spiritual parallels there. The greatest, one of the greatest spiritual insights I ever got was about 10 years ago. And I've shared this before, but a lot of you haven't heard this, so I'm gonna share it again because this continues to drive my life. When we were at the old building, how many of y'all were, were with us before we were at, the, at this building, like the old one across uh, in the boot store? Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, across from 27, across 27 from us was the worst restaurant in Nicholsville, known as CeCe's Pizza. There's a good reason it's not there anymore, okay? The, the pizza was terrible. The, 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 it, it was awful. The tomato sauce was bad. The, the toppings were bad. Even the bread was bad. But, it was cheap, and it was an all-you-can-eat buffet. So poor church planner and, 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 and the, our, our staff would go there because it was the only thing we could afford, like a dollar for all you could eat, and we got everything we paid for, okay? And so we, we could load up on breadsticks and, and pizza, even though it was terrible, but it was a lot of it. And, we, and we'd eat till, gosh, till, till we were so full. Well, I remember going there one time and then coming home, and my wife had surprised me with the best meal ever. She, she had pork loin and, and, and uh, um, like, like cornbread dressing, and, and oh, it's like my favorite meal. It's like the best food ever. And I looked at it, and I was like, I just, I'm not hungry. See, it wasn't the quality of the food that was the problem. It was the situation within me. See, guys, I was so full that I didn't want what was better. And I, I looked at that and I said, that is what I fill myself up with. I fill myself up with the world, with anxiety, with, with worry, with stress, with depression, with loneliness. I'm so full of that that I don't want what is better, which is God. And it's not, it's not a commentary on how good God is. It's a commentary on me. But it also works the other way around. See, guys, when we are so full, when we're so satisfied with what God has given us and what God tells us, then we can't be tempted. A man who is fully satisfied in his marriage can't be tempted to adultery because he doesn't want it. A person who is perfectly content with their income can't be tempted to steal or fudge numbers because you don't want it. A person who's fully satisfied with their life can't be tempted to, to go into debt or spend money they don't have simply because they, they don't want it. They're not hungry for it. And so when we are so fully satisfied with our relationship with God, it is so difficult to tempt us. Remember, the point of your temptation will be at your greatest dissatisfaction in life. Remember that, okay? Satan doesn't care what it is, as long as you, he replaces God with something else. And when you're so fully satisfied with God, Satan can come up to you and offer you this and that and this and that, and you're like, I, I, 
Satan, I'm not hungry. I'm full. It doesn't really matter what you're, how good this thing that you're dangling in front of me is. I, I, I'm full. I'm full of God's glory. I'm full of the love of God. I'm full of his grace. I'm full of his relationship. I, I want nothing else other than what he wants for me. So God, you keep, keep tempting if you want, but I'm full. My soul's satisfied. So you might want to go somewhere else. And when we do that, the Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. When he meets a fully satisfied Christian, when he meets a, a, a Christian who is so fully satisfied, their soul is fully satisfied with God, he flees. That's what the Bible tells us. So look at the places where you're discontent. Look at the hungers that you have. That is where you're being tempted. And find your satisfaction, your full satisfaction in God and God alone. Today, as you go out there, fully satisfied. Fully satisfied Christian can't be tempted. God bless you. Love you. See you next Sunday. Bye-bye.